Hello and welcome to the National Secular Society podcast. I'm Chris Sloggett, Communications Officer at the NSS. Today we'll be discussing why the advancement of religion shouldn't be a charitable purpose and why the government should stand up to religious groups who want to dilute inclusive teaching about relationships, sex and health. In a recent report, we highlighted the harm done by allowing organisations which exist solely to advance religion to claim charitable status. The report revealed that over 12,000 charities claim their status only on the basis that they promote religion, with some using public money to promote extremism and harmful practices. The report was covered in a variety of press outlets, including in The Observer newspaper and on BBC Radio. I'm joined now by our campaigns officer, Megan Manson, whose research was instrumental in producing this report. Hello, Megan. Hiya. Uh, so, firstly, do you mind just sort of telling me a little bit about what you found out when you were doing all your work on this report during your research? Okay, so this report, um, which is called uh, For the Public Benefit, The Case for Removing the Advancement of Religion as a Charitable Purpose, um, its main finding was, as you said, that over 12,000 charities are set up to do nothing apart from advancing religion, or so it seems. And the reason for this is that the advancement of religion is one of the 13 recognised charitable purposes according to charity law. So there's many different charitable purposes. Uh, There's um, the relieving of poverty, education, um, I think facilitating sports is another one, and advancing religion is one of those 13. So what it means is an organisation can set itself up as a charity for simply holding activities which are deemed to be advancing religion in any shape or form, even if it's very, very difficult for most people to recognise any public benefit to that particular activity. Yeah, so uh, in some cases this is particularly shocking, isn't it? And uh, yeah, you, you uncovered some examples where charities are, are claiming tax breaks despite the fact they're actively doing harm. Do you mind just telling us a bit about that? Well, registered charities are exempt from most forms of tax by the very virtue of the fact that they are charities um, because they are supposed to be serving a public benefit. Um, But many of the charities we examined didn't seem to be doing this at all. And as you said, some of them, I think you could argue, are causing more harm than good. We found registered charities uh, which are promoting and facilitating a gay conversion therapy Uh, We found charities training people to perform religious, so non-medical circumcision on babies. Um, We found charities that exist to certify non-stun religious methods of animal slaughter, which um, are generally regarded as cruel. And we found charities promoting extremist political ideology as well. So these are charities which are being given the opportunity to uh, benefit from charitable status simply because uh, you know, religion is seen as a good thing and, and they are religious, therefore what they're doing must be good, I suppose. That's the, that's the logic that gets applied. Um, what do you think is the solution to this? Well, the solution we proposed is on paper quite simple, and it's simply to remove the advancement of religion as one of the charitable purposes. So if a religious charity is providing a public benefit, a genuine public benefit, it should be easy for it to register under one of the other 12 heads of charity, for example, education, um, helping the poor. There's many different um, charitable purposes, which most of us recognise and say, oh, yes, that is a, definitely a public benefit. And I think there are many religious charities that could serve that and could list as a charity for those purposes. And if it isn't providing a public benefit, if that charity finds it quite difficult to justify its charitable status if you discount religion, 
then we should say it shouldn't be a charity. Um, so removing the advancement of religion as a charitable purpose would improve confidence in the charity sector and it would free up more public money for truly beneficial projects and it would reduce the burden on the charity regulators as well. Yeah, okay, so there'll be lots of advantages to actually you know, changing charity law so that the advancement of religion was no longer seen as you know, de facto a positive um, uh, what, so this is more, I suppose, the solution you're suggesting and that we propose in the report is more uh, a government solution. It's more of a legislative solution. Um, obviously, when things go wrong with charities, there's obviously often a lot of attention on the charity regulators. Um, what can the charity regulators actually do? Well, the sad thing is, is that the hands of the uh, charity regulators, like the Charity Commission for England and Wales, are largely tied by charity law. So basically anything that looks like a charity in its structure and its mission is obliged to register as one. So because advancing religion is considered a charitable purpose, any organisation that in any way advances religion and otherwise sort of looks like a charity and how it's set up has to be registered as a charity. That's the law. Another problem is that it is very difficult for charity regulators to deregister organisations that are found not to be providing a public benefit. Um, so if a charity is bringing about harm in pursuit of its aims, the Charity Commission are quite limited as to what they can do to stop it. And I think this is a real problem. It doesn't have the power, really, to crack down on some of the worst examples we've seen. Mm, OK, so it is legislative change that's the main thing and uh yeah I, I mean i know we've we've reported some charities to the regulators as well haven't we? particularly the charity commission for england and wales um but yeah it is interesting i suppose that it's almost that their hands are tied um okay the uh, i mean a possible comeback to this report so just anticipating uh, an argument from our opponents um I'd say anticipating it's actually an argument that we tend to hear quite a lot is that um many religious charities do good um, obviously, a lot of people would say, well, you know, religious groups um, often do you know, alleviate poverty or, you know, they provide education. Um, and how does the report actually handle that? Well, the report acknowledges that there are many people who are motivated to do charitable work through their religious beliefs. And uh, we support that. We think that any organisation that is providing a genuine public benefit should be equally eligible for charitable status, regardless of whether or not it has a religious ethos. Um, removing the advancement of religion would create a better environment for those genuinely beneficial religious charities to flourish. Because if you weed out the non-beneficial or the harmful charities, this would increase confidence in the charity sector, so more people are willing to donate their money. And it would free up the resources of the charity regulators so they can actually look after these charities uh, more efficiently. Okay, so, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think it's a quite a comprehensive answer, isn't it, that we, um, we're not calling for religion, religious charities to be stripped of their status automatically. It's just the idea that if you are promoting religion, that should not be de facto um, a charitable purpose. So it's, essentially, religious charities would be subject to a secular public benefit test. I think that's, that, that's, that, that's really important to stress, isn't it? Um, what have we done about this then? What do we, I mean, obviously we've written this, this, this report, there's been all this research. Um, yeah, what have we done? 
Well, we've sent the report to key stakeholders and to make this case, removing the advancement of religion as a charitable purpose. And this whole area has become a new key campaign area for us. Um, we're proactively monitoring religious charities to identify potential problems and work with the regulators in improving this sector. We've already reported a number of problematic charities to the Charity Commission and action has been taken as a result. So, for example, we found several charities running mosques that were, well, the web, their websites were endorsing extremist messages, like calling for the killing of apostates. And we reported these to the Charity Commission, and they've said that they would engage with these charities to remind them of their particular duties as a charity. And a lot of that extremist material is now gone from those websites, I'm happy to say. Okay, so we can, so yeah, we've, we've tried, we're trying to fight the big fight and some several smaller fights at the same time, I suppose. Yeah. Um, and I, I suppose, how can people listening to us who agree with what we're saying, who think, yeah, there should be a secular public benefit test, yeah, um, you know, religion isn't de facto um, a source of good, it doesn't necessarily, it's not necessarily a charitable purpose, um, how can they help us to make the case? Well, one of the best ways people can help is to spread awareness of this issue, because at the moment, uh, very few people realise that a lot of people wouldn't even realise that religious organisations are charities. And I think very few people know that the reason why they seem to benefit from seemingly unjustifiable tax breaks is because they have this privilege in charity law that advancing religion in and of itself is recognised as a charitable purpose. So we need to get the word out that religious privilege must be removed from the charitable sector and uh, that all charities, whatever their ethos, should be held to the same high standards in demonstrating a tangible public benefit. And one of the easiest ways you can do this is to write to your MP about the issue and we've got a, a template email for you to do this on our website. So if you just go to our website which is secularism.org.uk uh, you'll find a button that says get involved and if you select under the menu write to your MP you can select um, the letter from there and of course please do read the charity report itself which you can download from our website uh, for free or um, if you would prefer a paper copy you can get in touch with us and we can see what we can do about that. So the report is called For the Public Benefit, the case for removing the advancement of religion as a charitable purpose uh, by the National Secular Society. Megan Manson, thank you very much. Thanks, Chris. And now, religious campaigners are stepping up their efforts to shut down teaching about relationships and sex, which doesn't conform to their narrow worldview. This week, BBC Panorama reported on mainly Muslim protesters who have gathered outside schools in Birmingham for months in an attempt to get them to change their curricula, with some support from uh, reactionary groups among other religions as well. Um, meanwhile, the government is making it compulsory to teach relationships and sex education from September 2020, but it's made some concerning concessions to religious groups. I'm joined to discuss this by our Education and Schools Officer, Alistair Lichton, who's been monitoring these stories and coordinating our response to them. Hi, Alistair. Hi, Chris. Uh, so this is a huge uh, topic, really, which has been in the news regularly for many months now. Um, there are also at least a couple of parallel ongoing stories here, as I suppose I've just been outlining. Um, so just to start with, could you summarise why there are protests in Birmingham and elsewhere and what's going on with regard to that? Uh for years, there's been momentum behind making RSE statutory and inclusive in England, Scotland and Wales. 
Uh, now, pretty near the only opposition to this has been from regressive religious groups. We've seen this opposition take different forms. So if we were having this conversation this time last year, we'd probably be talking about mainly reactionary Christian groups. We happen at the moment to be talking about mainly reactionary Muslim groups. Yep. This, the, what has got a lot of pre uh, press coverage and is, is the big thing at the moment are predominantly Muslim campaigns touring the country, uh, spreading misinformation and encouraging parents to protest outside schools and target LGBT teachers and allies. Uh, this is very nasty and a very dangerous moment. So what's your assessment of the way the government's responded to this? How could it show the schools more support? I have to say that the DfE's response has been inadequate. And that's not me just reflexively bashing the DfE. I can point to good things they've done about this. But they need to do a lot more, a lot earlier and a lot louder. When you have a mob outside a school shouting homophobic abuse at teachers, at public servants... That needs to be damn near number one priority for the education secretary. There needs to be a strong public rebuttal of the misinformation and lies being spread about RSE. There needs to be a message early, public and loud to all schools that, the, that not only is inclusive RSE an option that schools might se select, but is required by this legislation. By attempting to appease reactionary religious groups elsewhere, the DfE made it harder to confront these groups. And it just goes to show that bullies can't be appeased. They need to be confronted. The DfE needs to support Ofsted in making absolutely clear that schools which fail the legal requirements for inclusive RSE will be held accountable. So it's partly about messaging and it's partly about, uh, I suppose well, legislation and or, you know, the, the sort of the more concrete methods of, of, of accountability. Yeah, defending what's there. Is yeah, the okay. So um, I suppose that moves us possibly quite nicely to government guidance. Um, and so meanwhile, the government has made it compulsory for schools to teach about relationships, sex and health in all schools in England from September next year. Um, this is a step forward, but you're concerned about dilutions for religious groups. Uh, yes, Sam. I think I'll just quickly correct in my previous answer. I talked about both legislation and guidance. The legislation requires the government to bring in the guidance. The guidance is what says what needs to be an RSE. Then that filters down to school policy. Uh, but going back to, to this question, I have to plug our excellent research report, Unsafe Sex Education, which, which was from last year. And that really showed how discriminatory, inaccurate and shame-based RSE is still taught in many faith schools. I guess that's hardly surprising given the institutional homophobia in every faith group which runs schools, uh, particularly the two largest providers, the C of E and the Catholic Church. That's not to say there's not good practice and there aren't faith schools which don't allow their faith ethos to um, dilute or to disrupt um, RSE. Beyond that, the requirement to, uh, for all schools, not just faith schools, to take into account the religious background of pupils creates two problems. Firstly, it encourages faith schools to try and push the boundaries to make RSE less uh, comprehensive and less inclusive. So Catholic schools not wanting to teach about reproductive rights, other faith schools not wanting to teach about LGBT issues. And secondly, it encourages religiously motivated parents to believe that they can restrict RSE in non-faith schools. Mm. So if we look at these protesters outside schools in Birmingham are saying, are saying, you're not taking into account our religious background. Again, it is partly about just the message that it gives to people who are just seem to be completely set on 
trying to bully the government and indeed school individual schools, which is an easier you know, easier thing to do yeah. to bully individual schools. It's the DfE has tried to appease religious groups, and then when groups like the National Secular Society have gone and pointed out this problem and the really pr- the great problems caused by this very unclear language about taking people's religious uh, backgrounds into account, the DfE then try and appease us and try to appease. LGBT inclusive mm. groups are saying, "Oh, don't worry about it. No one's. It's not going to cause this problem that you're you're you know you're you're crazy. It's not going to cause this problem in schools. Actually, you know the evidence shows it does." Okay, yeah. So it's trying really to triangulate on something where it really just needs to be a bit more non-negotiable, I yeah. suppose. Um, so those who disagree with us uh, often say parents have the right to decide what children learn at school. Uh, what's your response to that argument? Well, parents have the right to raise their children in accordance with their beliefs, but schools don't need to kowtow to these beliefs in every instance. Uh, The campaign to make RSE compulsory has gone on, it's been a decade of consultations, of progress. Parents have had every opportunity to get involved, to respond to consultations, to put their views across. When schools deliver, uh, create their, their RC curriculum, they speak to parents. Parents have every opportunity to put their views across, but a small minority of parents that basically don't want uh, certain issues covered, they don't get just then to override that whole, pro- that whole process. We should also point out that this inclusive RSE is incredibly widely supported and expected by parents. So actually, most parents support this. Yes, okay, so... Um you're particularly concerned about the way the religious groups misuse the term age appropriate as well. So do you mind just explaining why that is? Yeah, this is a a bit of a bugbear for me and it's actually quite simple. Uh, In part, age appropriate is just kind of a euphemism for people saying we don't want to cover these topics. Uh, It's also part of, you know, the long running, uh, very nasty homophobic narrative that LGBT people are trying to, you know, influence children it's part of the very very nasty history of tying homosexuality to Mm -hmm. paedophilia. It's also part of conspiracy theories and misinformation around RSE that it's it's teaching explicit LGBT content to young people. Jewish Orthodox schools, for example, hope to use this age-appropriate language to just completely get around acknowledging that LGBT people exist by simply raising the age appropriateness of that. Say, oh, it's you know, it can't cover LGBT issues. It's not age appropriate till and then set an age, which basically means either the school say it's not appropriate till sixth form. The school happens not to have a sixth form, or students leave at that age anyway. So trying to use age appropriateness just to avoid it entirely. Mm. I say it's simple. The age appropriateness of RSE content doesn't change based on sexuality. Yep. At a certain age, children are old enough to learn that some people have a mummy and a daddy. Children at that age are also old enough to learn that some people have two mummies or two daddies or one daddy or one mummy. Uh, uh, to use an analogy, and I, I don't know how film classifications work. I'm sure the audience will write in to tell us me how I'm wrong about this process. But in an analogy, let's say you have a film and it's a you, a use difficult, and it has a relationship plot as part of it. Then, and you've got, you know, two, a man and a woman you're holding hands. You change that to make it two men or two women holding hands. It's still a you. Yeah. Take at the other end of the scale, you maybe got a, a, a film that's an 18. It's got a romance uh, or relationship uh, plot, which features some sort of representation of sex. 
that doesn't that stays an 18 regardless of whether it's between a man and a woman or two men or two women etc yeah it's and this sort of treating lgbt issues as something extra like you know ooh, a controversial subject needs to be debated and taught it and, and children aren't old enough to learn about it to different age levels children actually get on with this fine they know you know you just use diversity samples just integrate it with the rest of the curriculum good teachers good schools are already doing this and it's not actually that controversial so yeah that sort of also seems to come across to me in some of the press coverage actually the um you see newspapers saying lgbt content or you know lgbt issues um and it's quite interesting the way the religious group's narrative gets pushed in a sort of soft way Mm. by uh, yeah just just through the, the the use of language which buys into their narrative if you see what i mean so i suppose what we talk about is lgbt inclusive education um the or just in, just inclusive education if you want to call it that because actually a lot of this stuff is not really the actual teaching is often not really about gay people or it's yeah, it's just basically like you're talking about relationships and you've got a couple of examples and you know let's say i was let's say i'm illustrating a children's book about relationships i might i wouldn't draw all the characters in the book as white i'd probably you know do a mix of different ethnicities in the characters in my examples uh, and and that's just that's just exactly the same, but with sexual sexual orientation and gender. And, and some of this stuff, though, is um, it, it, sexuality is is only actually a part of what's being taught, right, or, or what's being discussed. And yet, the discussion would suggest that these lessons are entirely about gay people or LGBT people. Um, th- there's th- there's a danger that people who follow this casually get the wrong end of the stick and, and, and misunderstand what's actually being taught, I suppose. Yeah, I, I understand that. And I think that is a bit of the risk because, you know, actually we're doing a lot to respond to this because there's a lot going on. But, you know, I would rather not be talking about this, to be honest with you. I would rather this was just basically so uncontroversial. And, you know, so th- this, should, this should be the same level of controversy as finding out that you have a textbook that has pictures of different people with different ethnicities in it. That's really how controversial it should be. Mm-hmm. Okay, so um, just moving on to our own role on this, what are we doing to keep the religious groups in check? Uh, I would say reactionary religious groups and groups who are trying to impose their religion rather because we should also say that support for inclusive RSE is pretty widespread across the religious spectrum, you know, from atheists to religious groups. Um, I'm really proud of the work the NSS and others are doing in this. And I have to say, we have been right out on front, in front on this. We've been consistently warning of the problems with the RSE guidance, that you know, vague language about uh, taking different religious, uh, previous religious backgrounds into concern. We, we, were, you know, we predicted and we said straight away how this was going to be exploited. And some of the pro-LGBT equality groups and the pro-RSE groups who had been so focused on building consensus kind of they didn't want to pretend that wasn't really a problem um so in some ways we know without taking away from their great contribution we've been ahead of lgbt equality groups on this 
We were the first to expose some of the extremist content behind the anti-RSE campaigns. And now we've brought public, public focus to that. A lot of that information has been deleted from websites. So, you know, we, the fact that we got that information, we archived that you know, to expose who, who is leading these campaigns was a really valuable service. At the moment, the largest, most active groups are Muslim groups, but there's also there are reactionary, reactionary religious groups of all stripes. And, you know, we're even seeing people who are normally anti, you know, very anti-Muslim bigots, uh, you know, really say nasty stuff about Muslims, suddenly coming out the woodwork to work with these groups, you know. Homophobia has mm. an amazing power to bring people together. Um, and for anyone listening who thinks that this is worthwhile, any of our supporters in particular, um, how can they help us make our case? Uh, I don't want to go all emotional here, but I think we need to defeat this hate by showing a little love. So if your school is doing inclusive RSE, let the teachers know that you support that and you support them. Uh, if someone you know is spreading these anti-RSE misinformation, misinformation messages, and you can maybe just gently correct them, maybe just point out, you know, as you know, not necessarily confronting them, but saying, look, actually, here's the facts, here's the information about it. Uh, obviously, if you want to counter misinformation, you need to get the facts. And I have to say, again, that our reporting on this has been fantastic. Uh, you can visit secularism.org.uk forward slash RSE for all our work on this topic. Uh, I absolutely recommend that you uh, sign the petition that we have and write your MP uh, on the campaigns pages. There's links to do all of that. Okay, so yeah, plenty of stuff on our website for anyone who's uh, interested in helping us out on this. Um, and finally, so this is something which our Chief Executive Stephen Evans wrote a blog about recently. Um, Secularists have tended to defend sexual freedom, uh, the right to have sex and relationships with who you want. Um, I was just wondering why you think that is. I think as a, as a straight cis dude, I'm best placed to answer this question. Uh, but in all seriousness, I think there are multiple reasons. Uh, and the fact is, firstly, that non-religious, just like non-religious people, LGBT folk have been most often targeted by religious power. So they gravitate to groups who are opposed to that uh, sort of religious power. That means that LGBT folk, including those of faith, I have to say, have been very well represented in the secularist movement and in the history of the NSS, which means that the NSS and the wider secularist movement have been very good at responding to their concerns. The second part of it is that often secularism is in the position of responding to theocratic and hardline religious movements. And those movements have in recent years, you know, recent decades, had a particular focus on targeting LGBT people. And therefore, if we're challenging the abuse of religious power, that's what we're going to be focusing on. Uh, yeah, so I suppose secularists ultimately go where religious groups try and impose their way of life on other people, don't they? I mean, we, I suppose, to some extent, we don't really get to pick our battles. Also, just another important point to pick up on there, I think, which you did, you've, and that's the second time that you've raised it as well, really, is the sort of the possible reluctance among some groups which do stand for LGBT rights in general to confront religious homophobia, I think, yeah. as well. I'm, I, I want to be very careful here because I don't, again, I don't want to be bashing LGBT groups who are doing really important work. But there is that tendency to, you know, so for example, I'm not going to name any names, but uh, so we say Shmonemul, uh they want to work in schools promoting LGBT inclusive education. And so they have, an in, so they want to 
try and work around these problems. So when we point out all these problems and you know institutional homophobia and institutional transphobia in faith schools, they've taken from what their perspective is a strategic decision, clearly, that it's better to try and work with schools in order to make it more inclusive. And that approach you know, has, has people can legitimately say that's a good approach, I'm sure. But because we don't have that necessary in- incentive, uh, we often just have the ability to you know, speak the truth. Uh, and we saw it with the RSE campaign. NSS was right, was you know, right in the centre of the coalition pushing for inclusive RSE. And then we got that. We got statutory RSE. The, the law was brought in that required the guidance being brought in. And then all the other groups sort of wanted to declare victory. And you know, sometimes you know, celebrating and saying we won is important. But they all wanted to celebrate and say we won. And then the NSS was sort of, you know, we were sort of the downers saying, oh, actually, you know, you, you know, you've still got this sort of thing here that says that you can use it for this purpose, and etc. Okay, uh, Alice Lichens, thank you very much. Thanks so much, Chris. And if you're keen to join the pushback against religious groups who are trying to undermine inclusive education, you might consider coming to our Bradlaugh lecture with Andrew Moffat in Manchester on the 7th of September. Andrew was targeted by mainly Muslim protesters for promoting inclusive education at a school in Birmingham. There are more details on our website at secularism.org.uk slash events. Alternatively, you can join or donate to the NSS on our website. There are links to everything that we've discussed in the show notes. Thank you for joining us on the NSS podcast. We'll see you next time.